Leonard Cohen suggested, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. About a month ago, because today is what October the 6th, about a month ago, Hope and I were at the beach and we went, they have a little teeny pool up on the, on the roof and we went up on the roof and there were two people already in the pool and they were splashing around and obviously having fun. And we hit it off just, just like that. Um, and we just had the greatest conversation up there. One of the things about this time in which we live right now, I believe, is that given half a chance, people want to connect with each other because we wanna feel safer and that helps us feel safer. But during the course of the conversation, they said, oh, we've got this, this friend named Bill Bray, you gotta meet him, you've gotta meet him. He, he like knows about boats and he writes and, and, and so I said, sure. So I did and, and uh, Bill is here with me today. I'm looking at him in, in uh, his uh, bedroom maybe. Stairs office, yeah. It, yeah. it has a bed in it as well. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, these days, every office has a bed in it, it seems yeah. to me. Um, I have a bed in my office, too, but that's why I put up pictures in the back, because when I'm doing a class, um, I've gotten feedback said, you know, it's not professional to have a bed in the back. So, okay. so anyhow, without much more, let me introduce Bill and uh, ask him to tell, tell us his story, how he, how he got here. Okay, well, thank you, Mac, uh, for having me and uh, uh, how I got here. So I'm uh, 55 years old. I grew up mostly in uh, Massachusetts. That's where I went to high school. Uh, but I also uh, was born in Wisconsin, moved uh, away uh, at age three to here in Annapolis, back to Wisconsin for five years, and uh, then to Massachusetts when I was 10. My father was a uh, uh, a college professor, professor of American literature. He was a, a Herman Melville scholar. Um, his first job, uh, postdoctoral job, was here in Annapolis teaching uh, midshipmen at the Naval Academy. And that's important because when I was in high school and uh, in the early 80s, I was you know reaching that point where you start really got to start thinking about where you want to go to college. And I was in his study one day, and I found a 1970 uh, catalog from the Naval Academy. And I flipped through it. And um, when he got home from uh, work that day, I, I said, I think this is where I want to go. And he was a, a little bit floored by it, but um, uh, happy as well. And, um, and he said, you really know what that is? <laughs> uh, I said, well, you know, it looks pretty, uh, pretty uh exciting you know they sail they they run they do this so um anyway um uh, he still had colleagues here and uh friends that were teaching uh, that he had not only taught with but did their graduate work together in madison and uh and so he made some connections and uh long story short i applied um sadly in the process of applying my father suddenly died um, when it, before my senior in high school, but I got into the prep school, uh, not the Naval Academy, uh, the Naval Academy Prep School in Newport, Rhode Island, um, and I went there for a year and then uh, came to Annapolis in 84, graduated in 88, 
I spent the next uh, almost three decades uh, on active duty as a naval officer, uh, mostly as an intelligence officer. Uh, moved 11 times, lived in uh, overseas twice, uh, a lot of different places. Um, raised four children through that um, and had a great time in the Navy. Um, did a lot of interesting jobs. I uh, spent a lot of time writing or managing analysts um, at different levels of what we would call uh, operational strategic levels of, of, of government. Um, I ran the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of Defense's brief for two years in the late 2000s. Uh, so would interface directly with them. I retired in 2016 and I spent a little less than two years as a consultant in Washington, D.C. And then I was asked to interview uh, for uh, the deputy editor in chief job of the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Magazine. Uh, Proceedings is uh, the fifth oldest continuously published periodical in the United States, behind only the Atlantic Monthly, uh, The Nation, Harper's, and Scientific American. Um, I always bring that up. It's a nice little trivia fact. It was uh, first issue was published in 1874, and it has gone at least once a year ever since. But since about 1919, it's been a quarterly. I mean, I'm sorry, a monthly. It was a quarterly. Uh, from 1880 to 1919, and now it's a monthly. It's a treasure trove of history, and the point of it is that uh, it's a vehicle for Navy, Marine Corps, and uh, Coast Guard uh, personnel, and anyone who cares about the sea services, to speak truth to power, to talk uh, without fear of retribution about what's wrong with the Navy and why it needs uh, why it needs to change. Uh, John Warden. Uh, started the Naval Institute. Uh, he was the superintendent of the Naval Academy in 1873. And he was very, very uh, fearful for the future of the Navy after the Civil War, which was uh, very poorly funded and in rough shape. And the rest of the world, uh, industrial world anyway, was really moving in a totally different direction uh, with their navies. So long story short, uh, tried to make it short. Um, I'm here in Annapolis back uh, sort of home uh, where I went to college and, uh, um, and having a great time at the Institute. And uh, I love uh, working with the young writers and, and helping them get, get into print. Thank you. Um, that's a lot of data. Uh, so a couple of things struck me. One is that you've traveled a lot. And I've been fortunate to travel a lot too. And that's such a blessing because we get to, we get to question our own assumptions and our own, our own uh, sort of social habits when we travel a lot and we discover that what lots of things that like we take as the way it's done don't apply, which is, which is I think a really good way to grow. And when I, first heard about you and was given a link to what you'd written, I will admit that I had some uh, preconceptions that since you're writing for a magazine for the Navy is how I saw it, that, that it would be sort of not quite propaganda, but it would be this sort of Navy line, whatever that is. And when I read what you'd written, I was very much taken up by what you just said is speak truth to power. Is that what you wrote about 
were some things which you saw, which you think need to be addressed and need to have attention paid to them and need something done in order to make the service stronger and better and more forward-looking is what I took that to be. And clearly the other thing, and, the, and um, I want to I want to ask you about that specifically, is that you love to write. And I love to write too. I'm a recovering English teacher <laughs> and, and I, I love writing. I find it exciting and, and exhausting and fascinating and frustrating and, and all those things. But I can't imagine not doing that. For me, it's like playing music. I, I sang for my supper for a long time and I still love to play. But words are, 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 are notes for me. So tell us, tell me how you got the writing bug. Yeah, good question. Um, so I think, you know, part of it is I'm, I'm my father's son, um, and I have an interest in that. Um, I didn't um, really consider myself a very good writer when I was a student, and uh, and even when I was a young uh, young officer. Um, one day I was reading an old uh, article. My father used to write freelance too, in, in addition to teaching. And and I, I had a he obviously, as I mentioned, passed away, but I had a collection of his old articles, and I was reading. Through them one day, um, uh, early in my officer life, and I read one. And I said, "Oh, this is a really. I should write an update to this." You know, kind of. The article was was something he wrote for Father's Day, and about the you know kind of the you know what every father experiences as a son grows up. You know, losing that innocence and watching their son become a, a teenager, etc. So. I, I wrote that thinking, oh, I don't know, even know what to do with it, you know, but, uh, um, but I uh, ended up publishing it in the uh, local paper in uh, San Diego. And uh, I think at that point, like anybody who, who tries to write when the first time you get published, you say, aha, I, there's something I could do here. I can actually, you know, write something that somebody might read. Um, and um, I haven't been a prolific writer in my uh, officer life, primarily because I was, very, very busy with my jobs and, and raising my family. I did publish some, um, um, I, I mean, I published um, a lot with proceedings um, and a few other places. And then once my career wound down uh, toward the end of my career and I had a little more time, I, I really got back into it. Uh, like you said, it's, uh, uh, well, I describe it always as writing is not, is not a task you do to, you know, achieve uh, something. It's a process. You just keep doing it. And, um, and keep working at it and the revisions. And when I work with authors, you know, I think um, some of them are a little shocked at the amount of editing and revision that has to go into getting a, a good essay into print. Um, and you need to come to terms with that as a writer. All writers uh, should understand that it's a process and, and, uh, and they, they should actually seek good editors. I mean, some of the best writers in American history had good editors. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my, my uh, partner, Beth, who I mentioned earlier, who also was my editor, the, the first thing I sent her early on in our relationship to look at was the um, introduction to my book. And I thought, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And she wrote back after a couple of weeks, this is the worst crap I've ever read. Nobody can understand it. Not even you. <laughs> so, so I thought, I, well, I guess I still have some work to do. And, and, and you're right, I did. And I didn't realize 
um, that part of this process, as you said, uh, includes going back and includes going back and includes going back. And she used to say uh, to me, although this is not about drinking, she would say, write drunk, edit sober. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to put it. I think Hemingway had a similar uh, uh, sentiment he expressed once about writing with passion and then letting it cool. And yeah. And then going back, and I always point to Hemingway, and I, I, I'm a bit of a, a geek as far as, you know, not just reading these great writers, but also reading how they did it um, yeah. and, and biographies. I mean, Hemingway, um, with all his superstardom and all the other aspects of his life that people know well, or many people know well, he was, he was a very... Uh, hard worker uh, when it came to writing. And in 2012, they brought out, Scribner's brought out a new uh, new edition of, of Farewell to Arms. And in the back, if anyone's interested, they get that version. In the back, they have the, I think it was 47 different endings he wrote to that book. Um, and you can see the scratch outs and the, and, and that was just the final paragraph um, before he was happy with the end. And um, when I when I when I started teaching in uh, the early '70s, a long time ago, one of my favorite books was a book by a guy named John Ciardi, C-I-A-R-D-I. It was called um, "How Does a Poem Mean?" And in the in the book, he he talked about the the craft of writing, and he said it is the pleasure of taking pains. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, it's it's work. It's hard, and and you have to be uh, you have to be humble about it. I mean, you have to look. I mean, you, you write things you think are great, and then a week later you read it and you're like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the tricks I learned is that prior to to putting anything up, because I write, I I I post maybe fifteen pieces a month in various places. Is I read it aloud. And if it sounds good, I'm there. And if it doesn't grab me by the sound, by by the tonality of it, it, it ain't there yet. Yeah. So let me ask you a question from 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 uh, where you sit, because I didn't serve. Um, so though our backgrounds have some confluence, they also have some significant differences. From from your place as part of the staff of this publication and with your experience in the Navy, what do you see as, as, as I guess, movement in your world towards a better coming out of this transition, of this pandemic, of this upheaval? However, you, what do you see about, about movement towards maybe coming out saner, healthier, different practices, looking at, at how we operate and improving that. Yeah, well, we've, we've, have, uh, we've published several pieces on how the pandemic has affected the Navy uh, readiness. And, you know, the Navy's in a business that can't just be turned off for two years and not, uh, and not done. Um, of course, m m many people are aware of the uh, outbreak and the unfortunate uh, development with the, uh, the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt and the commanding officer being removed. Um, so we published on that and um, 
and uh, several other. Uh, in fact, I have one I've got to get out here in the next couple of weeks about, you know, lessons learned essentially from the pandemic and how, how we move forward. So I would say that the Navy is uh, populated by extremely talented um, men and women from, from across the nation. Um, they're resilient. Uh, they, they know how to adapt. And um, when you when you're in the service, you know, good leadership is always about um, making, uh, you know, making lemons out of lemonade, you know, finding a way to to get the mission done and learning from it and and taking the good out of it. So that spirit lives in the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard. Um, um, so I think they'll come out of it uh, good. There'll be some things that you know, will change after that. Um, I think, uh, you know, too, and I know uh, talking with some of the uh, folks in Navy medicine that this idea of a pandemic, uh, we think about it as it's a once in a hundred year thing. And, and so once we're through this, phew, everyone can just relax and, you know, three generations down the road, we'll have to deal with the next one. That may not be the case. Uh, we may have to think about, you know, there's something else coming more or, you know, sooner than that. And, um, and so we should develop institutional knowledge on how to deal with it. You can deal with these things, but you have to um, understand how to mitigate the risk. If you could, um, and I don't want to put you at, at risk here, but if you could, given the, um, given the structure and the protocols and the traditions of the armed forces and the Navy in particular, and I mean no disrespect, <coughs> excuse me, if you could have some leverage and power to, to make some change in that habit, what would you like to see sort of left behind or, 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 or sought after as new structural or communication channels to make the Navy better able to deal with whatever comes down the pike next, which we cannot predict, right? Yeah. Um, I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, the, the um, you know, the Navy's, you know, like is dealing with many challenges, uh, just like everyone. Um, um, starting with what kind of fleet can we afford and what kind of fleet should we build uh, for the future? Uh, very, very serious, difficult discussions going on at the highest level of government. Shipbuilding has gotten extremely expensive. Um, and we are now you know, behind China as far as sheer ship numbers. Um, so the trend line is not looking good uh, from that standpoint. I don't think Americans in general have woken up to the fact that the United States will not have the biggest and best Navy in 15, 20 years, perhaps. I mean, I say best in a qualitative sense, we, we, we still can be the best in the world in many aspects. Um, but uh, the, the China in particular will be um, right there with us and certainly can build more ships um, than we can. Um, not that we are willing to, I should say, we, not that we can, we can build more, but what, with the, what the public and the, and the, the our Congress can afford and pay for and is willing to do given all the other requirements that uh, it has to fund. Um, so that's, that hasn't happened since 
the Second World War, since before the Second World War. Uh, so there's those are big challenges uh, for the Navy. I think the um, um, I mean, I, I, I don't really know how to answer the question about what I would change. I think the um, young men and women are very um, talented uh, that we bring in. Um, I, I have written in the past and I will continue to say that while the Navy and the military in general is highly technical and we need, we, we need young men and women that are, have a good technical aptitude. I use the word aptitude always instead of specializing in some discrete discipline, which is not good for a, a future officer. They should have uh, the aptitude to understand technical concepts, whether that uh, means when they go to flight school, when they go to nuclear power school, but they need so much more than that. And the, um, the challenges they'll face, uh, regardless of how good the tech is, uh, will, most of the biggest, hardest problems they have will be with people and leading and managing people. And that is where a good liberal education really pays its uh, dividends down the road. That was one of the pieces that you wrote, which really got me. I mean, I, that's one of the things that, that um, I write about, and that's what my book is about, is about education. <clears throat> Excuse me, is that I think, as, as you just said, and um, I'm, I'm trying not to put words in your mouth, but I think what I heard you say was that we're going to need... Um, a generation or generations to be able to not just think technically, but to think from a perspective of leadership and critical thinking and, and uh, every question not, cannot be answered with a formula. Yeah. And knowing when, when it can and when it can't. Um, and some things can be measured and some things can. I think Einstein said something along that line of, um, and, and knowing what can and can't uh, is important. I mean, I have been in environments with very technically gifted uh, officers, leaders, and you could tell that they struggled when you, you couldn't break this concept down into some quantifiable method that they could get an answer to. And sometimes you don't, you can't do that. You got to know when you can't do that. Um, and I think for if I could pitch my alma mater, the Naval Academy, I think does a very good job with this, uh, better than when I was there. When I was there in the 80s, it was still, um, I think, too tilted towards the, the technical STEM side. And that was largely the influence of Admiral Hyman Rickover's um, right. long shadow. Um, so that is uh, come back a little bit uh, without without with understanding that you need um, a good technical uh, education as well, a good uh, science and uh, technology education um, to be prepared to lead in this highly uh, technical uh, business. But um, that's, uh, you know, I think too, uh, Mac, that the, the, the larger academy has, as I wrote in that article, and that article was written, I think five years ago. So has, also kind of figured out that the general education, the liberal education has a value all its own that needs to be protected um, because the, uh, the creativity and the thinking are, are generally people that have a broader sort of perspective on things. Um, I used to talk with um, the Dean at the Naval War College um, uh, and he, at his previous life, he was a, uh, 
uh, one of his previous jobs was uh, he was the dean of Dartmouth's uh, School of Engineering. Thayer School, I think, is theirs. One of the oldest, if not the oldest, engineering school in America. And Dartmouth gives a, their engineering school gives a Bachelor of Arts. <laughs> and, and it's, uh, they, were, they sort of pioneered this STEAM idea, you know, science, technology, engineering, arts. And, and he told me that he was once asked in an interview for, uh, uh, why would a, a young man or woman go to Dartmouth instead of MIT if they got into both? And he said, because the MIT grad will work for the Dartmouth grad one day. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> line. <laughs> well, I, I'm, a, I'm a student of history. I, I certainly don't have the depth and breadth of your um, knowledge, especially about the history of the Navy. But the Navy has faced huge shifts in perspective um, during um the revolutionary war during the war of 1812 um again during the civil war the the uh, move from the battleship to the aircraft carrier you know right around world war ii and all the lessons learned from that and and has always found the um breadth of thinking to challenge the current habit and find the courage to say, yes, that's worked in the past. That doesn't mean it'll work next year. Yes, that's a great point. And so the Navy's gone through the, what I would call these eras of evolution, eras of um, innovation is a better word. Uh, and the innovators, you know, not generally not popular at first, a little bit of rebels, a little bit of radicals, uh, we called them in the early 1900s, uh, the Naval Institute, we call them the insurgents. These are the, the men that said, we are not as good as we think we are. Yeah. Um, and we we have got to change. Uh, we we published a book two years ago by uh, uh, historian Trent Hone called Learning War about the Navy from 1880 to the 1940 timeframe and how it, it evolved. And that was ultimately the Navy that went and won World War II. It's a fantastic book, um, and the uh, uh, there's a whole science and technical side of that that is very very important. And the Navy's had some leading thinkers in the science and technology. I mean, you know, going back to the 1800s, um, so that is a very important component. But there's also this bigger thinking, uh, innovative mind, uh, if I could say that that is is critical that can imagine. Uh, what a future conflict would, would look like. That's the hardest thing to do. And that's what people today are trying to do. If, God forbid, we end up in a, a, a real naval war, which we haven't had since 1945, um, in, the, in the future, um, how is that going to play out? Um, and what sort of concepts and operational art of thinking do we need to be doing and practicing to be ready for that? I would... I would absolutely concur from my civilian perspective and as a student of history and, you know, back to what you said about, about steam, um, cause I've been fighting that, that battle on uh, my own front for a long time is that when we, when we delve into the arts, when we use that part of our brain too, 
I think we are much better prepared to to be an insurgent, to to uh, think not just in terms of numbers and vectors, which are just fine. I was a math major at one point, and those are all great. But also to to let all that go long enough to say, I've got an idea, or how about this? Yeah. Or, I think we aren't thinking about and Annette. Let's remember what happened in 1941 when we weren't right. I mean, we can we can ask those questions, and I think that that we, and by that I mean you and I too, are are more likely to ask those questions if we have that exposure to Plato and Shakespeare and 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 music and all those other things, which which get different parts of our brain built, right. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also <laughs> instructive to know that there are people who have thought about these things before. Um, and, and having, so no one can read everything and be completely versed, but they, um, there seems to be sometimes a, uh, just uh, unawareness of, you know, some of the, that's gone before and you need to work at that. You need to read, I mean, almost Devridis, James Devridis, who you, you probably see in, the frequent contributor on cable news and other places now retired, you know, he, he, he said, uh, you know, the technical degree I got from the Naval Academy was important, more important to me in the first few years of my service as a junior officer. But once I got to mid grade and on, it was really the history the, um, and the humanities that uh, were uh, more important uh, to my uh, ability to lead and think at those levels. We're, we're on the same page, Bill. Um, yeah. Which is good because we're both fighting a similar fight, which is terrific. I want to ask you a final question, which is why I set you up by asking you if you have kids. Um, some, <coughs> excuse me, at some point down the line, when you are no longer bothering your children <laughs> for for whatever the reason, um, but they're talking to to their children, your grandchildren, and they're talking about how dad you dealt with 2020, what would you like them to say about how Bill Bray dealt with this extraordinary time? Well, I hope they would say I, um, I handled it with caution, caution and optimism. In fact, I had this discussion with my oldest the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's you know, a young mother. Um, you know, trying to understand the world from her perspective right now, you know, um, and she, she said, Dad, I'm just so depressed. I'm so nervous about this country. And I, and I said, you know, this country's been through some terrible things in its history, and it finds a way to get through it. Um, so have hope. And I, I think that's fine. I don't think it's, it's fine to be Pollyannish and naive about the threats we face and, and, and act with reckless abandon or anything, I think. Uh, but I, I do believe that um, um, you, you shouldn't, we shouldn't despair. I hope they, I hope they would say that, you know, he, he was, he was wise, but, but, uh, uh, but also, uh, wise and optimistic, but not careless uh, about uh, the situation and respectful of other people's, um, concerns, you know, one of the things about, uh, that bothers me more, more than anything and, and not to go into the politics that we're living in, but the, 
there seems to be, you know, a degradation in civility sometimes. And I think there's a whole different podcast you could do on that, on, on the, how people treat each other online um, when they don't know each other. I, when, when I get feedback from, um, when we get feedback on articles at the Institute and the, and the discussion just becomes unproductive, I always tell the person, I said, look, call me. Here's my phone number. Let's talk on the phone because you can't, you cannot connect with someone on a person to person level unless you talk to them in person. Yeah. And when people talk to each other in person, they're generally polite. Um, they might disagree, but they generally are polite. Not everybody, but I mean, but, uh, but when you, when you have this separation, um, where you you have this uh, there's a term for it i'm sure but this uh in the, in the world of psychology uh when you're on a on an online platform and you're under a, probably a pseudonym and you don't have this inhibition the inhibition to, uh, are, are fall away and you you can be a jerk to people everybody's an idiot i'm not an idiot you know and and so i i am hopeful i think that um um like everything in life, you know, you know, you go through t tough things and you learn some things and some good can come out of it. Um, and I'm hoping that as you know, we go through this pandemic, which as everyone knows, it's a virus. It's a very dangerous virus. It can kill people. It has killed many people. Um, and it affects everybody. We're in this together, regardless of your political views, regardless of your, you know, anything. And that should bring us together more than divide us. And it's not a bad virus and it's not a good virus. It's just a successful virus. <laughs> yes. it, it doesn't pick and choose by the color of your skin or how tall you are or, you know what I mean? It just wants to replicate. That's right. And it is very good at that. And as you just said, we, we you know, um, we, we are, we are all in this lifeboat together. Yeah. Right. Yes. So I, I, uh, yes. Thank you. Um, my friend, um, watching you as you spoke, it's good to see your passion and your humor, which I see. And those are two important things for us to move forward with. And I see that more and more and more. And I do think people are hungry to figure out how to find a way to join rather than to just throw dirt. Yes. Right? Yes. All right. I'm going to get on with whatever happens next in my day. Um, I will read. It's called Learning War. Yes. I will read that. Um, and can I subscribe to your publication? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm a civilian. USNI.org. I'm, I'm writing that down. USNI.org. Yeah, you can go on there. You can. There's different uh, levels of membership. If you want the print magazine, you know it's a certain amount. If you want the uh, just digital, it's less. And of course, being a member also gives you discounts to our books. Cool. So we, we put about a hundred, little over a hundred books out a year. <clears throat> and we did the hunt for it October. I was that was our. <laughs> That's right. First uh, foray into fiction, 1984. And it did okay. It did okay. It did okay. Um, and finally, you have my email. Would you send me your um, your mailing address? Because I want to send you a copy of my book. Oh, sure. Cool? Yes. Good. Th thanks, Mac. 
my pleasure. And I, I will send you information about when the podcast is going to be live, as we say. And this has been a real pleasure. All right. Have a great day. You too. Later on. Bye. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.